Um, when I was a child, I loved, uh, this is going to be gross, but I, I'm just going to tell it to you. I loved uh, McDonald's chicken nuggets, okay? Sort of a guilty pleasure there. And we were kids, uh, that was a big deal for us to go to Mackey D's and like get some of those things, a box of 10 or whatever it was, and just dominate them. And, um, and you know, I kind of got over them when I stopped eating chicken McNuggets. I don't know when that was. And years ago, um, there was this very famous uh, video on YouTube about how these things are made. Has anybody ever seen them? If you love chicken McNuggets from McDonald's, do yourself a favor, continue, continue in your blissful ignorance, and do not watch this video. Because you've heard the expression, uh, I just want to eat the sausage, I don't want to see how it's made. Uh, let me tell you, you just want to eat the chicken nuggets, you don't want to find out how they're made. Now, I don't know if McDonald's is the, McDonald's is the product of some smear campaign, but from what I have seen... Uh, Man, it is so nasty. I just got this big picture um, of like pink poop, um, and what and, and this and how it just like been squished little, you know, boot shapes or whatever. It's like, oh, it's so bad. Anyways, the bottom line is, what's inside of those things is 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 nasty. It's chicken, but I don't know what it is. Anyways, why share a story like that with you? Why and what does it have to do with Romans chapter three? Well, let me tell you what it, I think it has actually something huge to do with it. Let me tell you what it is. Um, Romans chapter 3 kind of pulls back the curtain. It pops the hood. It shows us how sausage is made. And tells us about ourselves in some real unflattering ways. It says that who we are is actually not good. And it busts up the illusion that people like you and me, without Jesus, are actually okay. It shows us quite the contrary. And it's real sobering. Because when you read this text, you read it, and it has language like this, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. No one. It's a, it's, a, it's a blanket qualification. Let me offer a few caveats before we jump in tonight. We're going to look tonight at what Paul has to tell us about you and me. And it's the last of a string of sort of bad news sermons. Since Romans chapter 1, Paul has been delivering the, the, the sort of bad news about us. And tonight it's going to end. Next week, I urge you, if you're visiting tonight... I urge you to please come back because there's going to be wonderful, powerful, good news next week. But tonight, we're going to look at some bad news. And I think immediately when you hear this, you go, I, I bet some of you just tune out and you go, you see, Ryan, that's why Christianity is such a joke. It's because it says stuff like, no one is righteous. You can't possibly mean that. Let me, let me qualify this. Paul is not saying from the outset, that your roommate who is not a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, that there's nothing good about them, there's nothing virtuous about them. That's not what he's getting at. We're going to look at what he means later on. Nor does this mean that if you're not a Christian, that, you're not a, that you can't be a more moral person 
than somebody who follows Christ. That's not what he's getting at. Paul assumes that. He's already naming that as he comes to the table. And so I think it's really helpful for you to see and understand as a little caveat to know what Paul is actually talking about so we don't lose him and tune me out for this next you know, 25 minutes or whatever. Tonight, y'all, I want to look in depth at what Paul tells us about who we are. And he is going to do that by highlighting and talking about this idea of sin. And one of the things that we're going to see as we begin is we're going to see, first of all, this idea of the exposure of sin. Next, Paul will show us the inclusivity of sin. And then lastly, Paul is going to show us the depth to which sin goes. And here's one thing I want to leave you with before we start. We said weeks ago that if you do not know your condition, the cure to that condition will not be good. Like you won't appreciate it, you won't see it, it won't be sweet to you. If you deny, if you cannot be honest about the condition, the diagnosis, the remedy will not be sweet. And so tonight we have to really be honest with ourselves about who we are and about let the Bible speak to us some pretty unflattering news such that when we do come to this wonderful, compelling, beautiful gospel, that it hits us. Does that make sense? That's what we have to do one last time tonight as Paul kind of rounds the curve. So first of all, this idea of the exposure of sin. Now we're going to start at the actual end of the passage in verses 19 and 20 because you'll see in verse 20 that word for. And Paul is saying yada, 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 9 through 19 for this. And so verse 20 is the grounds that everything above it is sort of resting on. And I think what you see in verses 19 and 20 is this idea of the exposure of sin. What is Paul saying? What is Paul getting at? Well, Paul as a Jewish man is anticipating what his Jewish readers would have been thinking as he is writing this out. They would have said something like this, Yeah, Paul, we got you about that whole sin problem. Those Gentiles over there, the non-Jewish folk, they've got problems to be sure, but not us. You see, we've got this privileged status. We have the law, the law being the Old Testament or being the Bible as it was at the time. We are the ones that God spoke to in the wilderness and gave His counsel and gave His wisdom and teaching. In short, therefore, we're privileged people with privileged information. And Paul takes all of that and he turns it on its, on its head and he says, I want you all to know this. I want you to know that the possession of God's law is not, repeat, it is not what saves you. Why? Look with me at verse 20. Because the law can never save. It only exposes your need. It only shows you your guilt. That's what he means right there in verse 20 when he says, For by works of the law, keeping the law, keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping the implications of the Ten Commandments, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Why? Here it is, the back half of 20. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We might even say conviction of sin, an awareness of sin. What does he mean? Well, think about it like this. I have a lead foot. I don't know how many of y'all have lead feet, but that tends to make me drive a little bit faster than the speed limit that is posted. I get this from my mom. And not too long ago, um, it got the best of me. I was driving south on Highway I-35, 
uh, down through the swelling metropolis of Itasca, Texas. And I wasn't paying attention when all of a sudden this nice gentleman from the state of Texas signaled his blue lights. He wanted to talk to me and give me a letter. No big deal. Um, it's very nice of him to do that, by the way. I was, really, I was really grateful to have some conversation with him. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, right? You're driving along and you're not aware you are doing so, but uh, you're speeding. And here's the thing. The non-awareness of your speeding doesn't mean that you aren't. Make sense? The non-awareness of your speeding does not mean that you aren't. You only know you are breaking the law when you see the law posted on a sign, speed limit 70 miles an hour, or when you get a visit, like I did, from one of my friends in black and blue, right? It's then what happens. The law comes, and now you're aware of your sin. You tracking? Paul's saying this. You think that by having possession of this law, religious people, that you now can say, yeah, but we got the good stuff. We've got this privileged status. Paul is saying, uh-uh-uh-uh. The law itself, keeping it, can never save you. In fact, it does the opposite of save you. It exposes you and it shows you how sinful you really are. Does that make sense? That's what we have been looking at for the past few weeks. And this is critical, you guys. This is absolutely critical. Paul is saying this, therefore, that obedience to the law will never save you. Not because the law is broken or because the law is flawed, but precisely because we are. We don't have it in us to keep us. The standard is absolutely crushingly high, and we are without the ability to keep it. And therefore, the law is not a set of checkboxes to keep. In fact, it is a standard that we fail. And it is given to us to expose our need for a Savior and for a Rescuer. Does this make sense? Now, I don't know about you, but this exposes my give-me-the-checklist way of approaching God. You see, I want God to say, do these ten things and everything will be fine, right? And, and what, what this is teaching us is saying you can't ha- it, it, that will never work. Why? Because it only shows us how much of a failure we are. Think about this. This is incredibly difficult for TCU students. Why? Because all of y'all, m- most of y'all... <laughs> are a bunch of achievers. You're very well accomplished. You wouldn't have gotten into TCU if you weren't. You work hard. And in fact, most of what you kind of build your life on is being somebody who produces results and accomplishes things well. Straw poll here, but if I were to ask some of y'all, and I've done this enough now, I'm in my sixth year, if I were just to ask you the question, Charles and I and uh, Brittany and I talk about this. We say, if we were to ask you the question, hey, how are you doing? Do you know what the sort of number one response is to that question? Here it is. Oh, I am so blank. What do you think goes in the blank? I'm so busy. I'm so stressed. Oh my gosh, I've got so much to do. Have you ever found yourself saying that? Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. What does it have to do with anything? Well, listen, it goes like this. You see, because one of the idols on this campus is to be involved in 10 things. 
right? It's to be doing everything. You see, so moreover, I need to be seen as an achiever. And to be seen as such is the height of success because I build my identity, right, on me being an achiever and me being successful. Now, I'm about to list some things off. All of them are good, but just, okay, it's not you I'm talking about. I'm talking about that prototypical student. Okay, here it is. Ready? So, you know what? I'm a frog camp facilitator. I'm a Neely Fellow. I'm pre-med. I work with 10 ministries. I go to 10 Bible studies every week. I'm in the business fraternity. Oh, and by the way, as a female, I'm a size 2. I work out all the time, and, uh, and I don't eat. Or I'm a female. I mean, I'm a, I'm a male. I'm 6'2". I can bench 305. My body fat's under 3%. And I'm, guess what? I'm not even 15 yet. I'm a prodigy. <laughs> right? Now, it's a caricature. But a caricature does what? It highlights all of the things that stand out about who we are. Listen, y'all. The more we do, the more we accomplish, the better we feel about ourselves, the more of a sense of being okay swells. But see, you come to a place like RUF tonight and the standard is laid before you. Here's the standard. The standard says this, ready? God has said, love me with all your heart. Love me with all your mind. Love me with all your soul. And for every word, thought, and deed, you must do good. And also, for every word, thought, and deed, you must never tend toward the bad. Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor as yourself perfectly at all points. Lastly, be holy, as God says, because I am holy. There's your standard. What happens? You see the standard? The blue lights are flashing, and it exposes you. It exposes you as a failure because nobody in this room would dare say they live up to that standard. What's that mean for us? I'm trying to get you to see that Paul is saying the law exposes us. It shows us where we fail. It shows us our need for a Savior because the standard, it's not like it can be met and we you know, we just need to try a little harder. Paul is saying, you don't have it in you. You do not have it in you to meet that standard. Here's something else I want you to see. Paul not only is telling us tonight that, there, that's, that the, the law exposes sin in us, but it also does this, that it shows us that sin is an equal opportunity offender. Does that make sense? It's an equal opportunity offender, which brings me to my second point. This idea of the inclusivity of sin. That all of us, the whole world, fall in it. Listen, I sounds morbid and dark, but I just want to say, hey, hang with me. I promise we're, this is important, okay? Hang with me on this. The inclusivity of sin. The next thing that we see, did you see it there in verse 9 and 10? Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, Paul is saying. You religious folks do not have privileged status. Everybody is equal. Why? There it is in verse, uh, verse 9. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. One pastor put it this way, that all of our spiritual passports have either been stamped under sin or under grace. And all of us, apart from God's work for us in Christ, 
have ours stamped under sin. That's where all of us are. Every single one of us. This is an absolutely staggering claim because of the third or fourth word in there when Paul uses the word we. Because Paul is including himself in it. Paul's not taking the moral high road and he's not looking down at people. He's saying, no, me, a Pharisee, the one who has, been, uh, who has lived a morally righteous and pure life. He's saying, me too, I am in this lot of being under sin. And I want you to understand tonight that that is huge because he is saying no matter who you are, whether you're a moral person or whether you're an immoral person, whether you're a religious person or you're a secular person, whether you're somebody that, can, that sees yourself as socially progressive or sees yourself as socially conservative, that none of those things change your status one bit. We're all in the boat together. Illustration for you to kind of highlight this stuff, I think it's, it's wonderful. One of my favorite artists, singer-songwriter artists, is an artist, um, he lives in Brooklyn. Uh, his name is uh, Sufjan Stevens, at least he was in Brooklyn many years ago. And uh, one of my favorite songs that he writes comes on his, I think it's called Come On Feel the Illinois album, Illinois album. And he has a song called John Wayne Gacy. And John Wayne Gacy Jr. was a serial murderer. Uh, he killed many people, um, very murderous. And Stevens, because he was from Illinois, writes a song about, about Gacy. And it's called, I think it's called Gacy. Um, and in the song, he highlights and talks about some of these murders. And when the, when the authorities arrested Gacy, I mean, um, they, they actually pulled up the floorboards and there were his victims were there being stored underneath his house. Now you might go, that's utterly gruesome. I cannot believe it. I want you to listen to the last words of, of Stevens' song. I'm not gonna, I don't have it played, but I'll read it to you. These are the last few words. In my, Stevens, in my best behavior, my best behavior, my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for secrets that I have hid. What's he doing? He's saying, me and Gacy, I got a lot in common. I may have never killed anybody, but in God's eyes, Stevens is a Christian, but in God's eyes, I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat as Gacy. Now look, I am not saying that there are not sins that are more heinous than others. That's not what I'm getting at. I want you to see this. As hard as it is to imagine, Gacy and Billy Graham are in the same boat. That Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler are in the same boat. And you and me are in that boat with them. That's what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 3. That sin resides in all of us. And it utterly levels us. Now, does this mean that everybody is as bad as a Gacy or Hitler? Of course not. Think about it like this. Some of y'all have heard me share this uh, Grand Canyon story. Three guys are standing at the edge. All three of them get the bright idea that they can jump across the Grand Canyon's mile-wide gap, right? So the first guy, uh, a guy probably built a lot like me, his joints are achy, he's got a little bit of a spare tire around his gut. 
Uh, but hey, let's go easy on the guy, okay? You know, I mean, take it easy on him. Uh, he runs and jumps, and believe it or not, he makes it an entire eight feet out off the ledge. Pretty impressive. Pretty stinking impressive, if you ask me. And then the second guy goes. We might say he's had a little bit more fun and enjoyable life because he may have eaten a little bit more donuts. He's kind of tubby, a little bit more rotund, as they say, okay? And as he begins to run, he kind of trips because he's out of shape, and he like falls off the edge. His distance is negligible, we might say, but he did, in fact, cover some of the gap. Well, then the third person is our dear friend, the um, world record holder long jumper. He takes off, he gets his sprint, he runs and he jumps, and he crushes the world record and jumps an entire 30 feet out off of the lip. Now, how silly would it be for me in that moment to say, hey, fatso, uh, you only made a few inches, I made it eight feet. Why? Because we didn't make it across the thing and we're dead at the bottom of the canyon. I want you to begin to think of God's standard like that. And that all of us, all of us, are at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It doesn't matter how good you are. The standard is too high. It doesn't actually matter how bad you are. The standard is too high. And what this text is showing us is that very, very clearly that all of us, that all of us are included in sin. Sin is very inclusive. It will welcome anyone, right? Because the judgment falls on all of us couple of points of application to drive this home about why this is important. The very first reason I think it's important is this. I don't know where each of you are tonight, but some of y'all, like I have said, are investigating Christianity. You're thinking about it. And if not, you have friends that are thinking about it. And what I want you to see from this very text is that Paul takes the idea that to be a Christian is to meet a moral checklist And that by meeting that checklist that God receives us and welcomes us, He takes it and He pulverizes it and grinds it to a powder. Why is that so important? Because if you are someone or know someone that is considering Christianity, we often come with a grid work. We come to the table with a mindset about what Christianity is. And almost a hundred times out of a hundred, the grid work that we come to investigate Christianity with is... This is about keeping rules. It's about being a good person. It's about, it's about staying away from bad stuff and doing good stuff. And do you see tonight that Paul is saying, no. What it means to be a Christian is to have a new status. It's to go from darkness to life. You actually don't try to be a Christian. Here's the, here's the question. If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? And you say, well, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to do some good stuff, I'm trying to say I'm sorry, da 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 Uh-uh. You've missed what it means to be a Christian. Christian. To be a Christian is not about trying. I'm not talking about obedience. I'm not talking about holiness. I'm not talking about... That's true. We'll get to that later. I'm talking about what gets you in. What establishes that relationship with you. With God, I mean. It's this idea that, that keeping rules is not where it's at. But secondly... If you are a Christian, I want you to see the inclusivity of sin is so important because when this begins to get inside of you, it does something to you. It does this. Ready? It will cause you to quit seeing yourself as better than everyone else because you don't have a moral high ground to stand on. 
You see what I'm saying? you got nothing to stand on because Jesus, if He saves you, saves you at your worst. He saves you as a failure. And therefore, as you look around the people in your life, you have no ground to stand on and say, clean it up, get your act together. If they would just do this, then... But no. The gospel crushes pride in all of its forms. And it begins to free us to look at our neighbors, our roommates, our parents, even my own children, in new ways to say, hey, guess what? I get it. I can resonate with what you're going through because you ought to see what's underneath my floorboards. You see what I'm saying? You need to know what Jesus saved me from. Because if you really knew me, you might turn around and run out the room. Because if you knew me like Jesus knew me, then that's what you would do. The gospel flattens that. It crushes it in all of its forms. The last thing I want to look at tonight is this. I want you to see that, the, that Paul is showing us not only the exposure of sin, not only the inclusivity of sin, that everybody, everybody is, is indicted, but also the depth to which it goes. So let's take a look lastly at this idea of the depth of sin. Again, back to our text. Did you notice there in verse 10, Paul begins, if you ever see, let me see the, the printout there. The printout, yeah, the printout isn't able to capture it. But if you have in your Bible, you'll see it looks like the paragraphs look a little different. And what Paul is doing there is he's highlighting and quoting Old Testament texts. That's a way of showing a citation. He's grabbing stuff from the Old Testament, and look what he says there. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. And then he goes on and down in verse 13, and he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And again, up in verse 11, no one seeks God. What is Paul trying to show us? Paul wants you to begin to see that that sin in the life of an individual is comprehensive. That it touches all parts of our being. That it, it messes with our bodies. We die. It messes with our minds. We don't think right thoughts after God. It breaks us down socially where we don't love each other as we ought and we should. An illustration, I just read a story this week that a young girl from the state of Texas was found in my hometown of Franklin, Tennessee, I think last week. She was, she was abducted somewhere down here and sold, being marketed as somebody that was going to be sold into slavery. Twelve years old. By God's grace, that girl was found. I don't know what her story is. Why did that happen? Paul says this. Because sin is real. Because it exists in our world. It accounts for the crap that exists in our world. That's what he's getting at here. What else does he show us? He also shows not only that sin is comprehensive and affects all types of parts of our being, but this is the point I want to make, is that it goes down into the very center of our being. And we see that when he says that no one seeks for God. Let me clarify a little bit about what Paul means. Paul is not saying 
that people aren't spiritually interested. Paul is not saying that there aren't people who are genuinely concerned and they want to know some questions and they want to connect with the divine. That's not what Paul is getting at. Nor is he saying when he says that no one uh, does good, like I mentioned earlier, he's not saying that non-Christians are, are by definition immoral people. That's not what he's getting at. He is, or non-virtuous people, he is saying something very, very specific. That idea of seeking God is a picture of diligent seeking. It is, as it were, to be, it's, a, it's synonymous with this idea, this idea of the central want and desire of the heart. It is what the heart most wants. In other words, it's the central desire. It is, it is the one that is described as not wanting God, as the central desire of their heart. And Paul is saying that nobody, nobody does that. Apart from the grace of Jesus, the miraculous rebirth that He gives by His Spirit, nobody wants God. None. That is staggering. That is depth. It's going all the way down to the heart. And here, Paul's point is simple. Sin isn't just about doing bad things. It is primarily about what our hearts most want. Sin is not primarily about doing bad things. It is about a disposition of heart. And Paul is saying this, that all of us run away from God. That none of us seek Him apart from His grace. You think I'm lying on this? Let me show you this in Scripture. I've highlighted a few texts that I want to read with you to sort of show you the overwhelming testimony of the Bible on this point. So here's a few verses we're going to read together. Here's one. Ready? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. I'm just going to roll through four of these. Here it is. One, they are darkened in their understanding, talking about people apart from God, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them, do to their hardness of heart. Paul is saying this. People don't know God because they don't want God. Not the other way around. It's not as though we don't want God because we don't know who He is. No, 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 no. God is saying, Paul is saying this. The reason that people don't know God is because in their hearts they don't want Him. The heart is bent in on itself. It wants self-glory. It wants self-justification. And Paul is saying the reason we don't know this, know Him, is because our hearts don't want Him. Secondly, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. We're going to get to this text later on in the semester. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Here it is. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In other words, the heart, apart from God's grace, does not have the capacity... It doesn't have the inbuilt workings to submit to God. It's dead. It's dead towards Him. It doesn't seek Him. Thirdly, John chapter 6, verse 65. He says this, Jesus. This is Jesus talking. This is why I told you that no one can come to Me, Jesus, unless what first happens? Unless it is granted to that man or woman by the Father. The Father must involve, the Father must say, You heart, turn to Jesus. Does that make sense? Lastly, last point, 1 John 4 9. We love God. Why? 
Because He first loved us. What's that mean? A couple things. If you're a Christian, you may say, no, 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 Ryan. You better back up. Because I chose Jesus. I chose Him. And I want to say, yes, you did. But that was not the first move of your heart. There was something prior to that. And that is God smiling on you. When your heart was dead, when you did not want Him, Jesus looked at you and He said, Mine. And He brought new life into your heart such that you would turn to Him. That's what that means. And it also means this. If that is true, if that is what is going on, that means that the only way the heart can ever be brought to life is by seeing the regenerating work of God taking something dead and making it alive. We all, I need to land the plane because I've gone a little long, but I want you guys to see this last, this last point perhaps. I would like you to see and to understand that Jesus Himself is the one who seeks us when we don't seek Him. You see that? That He is the one that seeks after us when we don't seek Him. That He is the one that desires us when we don't desire Him. We are the object of His love when He is the object of our scorn. That's what this text is telling us. And because of His wonderful grace, He comes after us and He wants people who don't want Him. Does that make sense? It's like all of us are playing kickball, right? And none of us are last picked. We're all first picked. That's what the Gospel tells us. That's how much Jesus delights in us. Here's the last thing I want to show you, and we'll end here. This comes from an old hymn, and it is absolutely beautiful. It's, 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 it pictures this idea of Jesus seeking us when we think we are seeking Him. Listen to this text. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. What lies at the heart of the Gospel is that our hearts are dead. That's the bad news. There it is. And that all of us stand condemned apart from His grace. But the great news of the Gospel is is that Jesus seeks out condemned people to give them life apart from anything that they can do. So here's my last question to you. Where are you? Where are you? Run to Jesus. Run to Him. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time, run to Him. He loves you. He delights in showing mercy to you. It does not matter what your story is. It does not matter how far you think you have gone. Jesus loves to rescue people at their very worst. That's all He does. Let's pray.